Hey, this is Kale Clark. Welcome back to The Faith Explained on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio mobile app. It's our brand new series on the letter to the Romans from St. Paul. Without any further ado, let's pick it up where we left off last time. Romans chapter 1, and this is kind of the introduction to the letter. Let's pick it up at verses 3 and 4. We started talking about this last time. Uh, St. Paul says the gospel concerning his son, who was descended from David, according to the flesh, and designated son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. And one of the things that we talked about last time was that there is a theological error. It's a heresy of false teaching called adoptionism, that Jesus was just an ordinary guy. And then God, quote unquote, adopted him either at the baptism or at the resurrection. And that's where he gets this special status. Not the case. He was always the divine son who became incarnate. And then we, we start talking about this idea of the son of God. Because son of God was, was understood in various ways in the ancient world. Um, most people, when they, when they hear Jesus talking about uh, son of man, which is his favorite way to talk about himself, they think that's a reference to his human nature. <laughs> Not the case of anything. That's a reference to his divinity. That comes from Daniel 7. This mysterious son of man who receives a kingdom, power, and glory, and all peoples serve him. And this vision of the prophet Daniel. And really, all Israelites viewed themselves as children of God, sons of God, daughters of God, uh, their status. But, but interestingly enough, the Roman is talking about this letter being written to Rome, the capital of the empire. The Roman Empire, the Roman Emperor, rather, the Caesar, thought of himself as a divine son of God. And there are all kinds of inscriptions that have been unearthed from ancient Rome to this effect. Uh, Caesar Augustus, God from God, one of them. It sounds a lot like the Nicene Creed. So there was this cult of emperor worship. And of course, the early Christians would have nothing to do with that and paid for that with their lives in many cases. So that's something to, to think about when you hear this title, Son of God, from a, a Gentile perspective, but also from a Jewish perspective. And, and of course, um, the Roman church is made up of Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. And we really can't forget about the promises that God made to David. Talking about Jesus descended from David, this is really interesting. Let's look at 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14. And this is God essentially promising what he's going to do for David. It says, I will be his father, and he shall be my son. When he commits iniquity, I will, that's of course talking not about Jesus, didn't commit any sin, this is David. When he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but I will not take my merciful love from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So this is God speaking through the mouth of the prophet Nathan to David. And it's interesting that the only time, other than Jesus preaching about the kingdom of God in the New Covenant, the other time that the term kingdom of God is mentioned is in reference to the kingdom of David. So this throne being established forever, we talked about this, how no king in the line of David could honestly fulfill that because they all died. But Jesus, who is descended from David, and this is what the, the gospels say. This is what the New Testament says. 2 Timothy 2, verse 8, another letter of St. Paul. 
Paul writes, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descended from David, as preached in my gospel. So this is what it's all about. He's risen from the dead, and he's descended from David as son of God. This is meaningful to the Gentiles. He's the real son of God, not Caesar, and to the Jews as well. He is that successor of King David who can rule forever. And the reason why he can rule forever is because he is raised from the dead. And, and of course, we can also throw in Psalm 2, a messianic psalm, which was, was originally addressed to the Davidic king. Uh, but of course, it applies to Jesus as well. Ultimately, I will tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today, I have begotten you. And then it goes on to talk about ruling the nations with a rod of iron. And then in Revelation, of course, we see the child of Mary ruling the nations with a rod of iron. It ultimately applies to Jesus Christ. So this is very, very important for us to understand as we move through this, that Jesus, by virtue of his resurrection, can reign forever on the throne of David. In this great sermon that Peter, that Peter preaches in Pentecost, um, uh, this is just unbelievable. In the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 2, and then thousands of people convert right on the spot. The Holy Spirit cuts them to the heart. Peter says, Brethren, I may say to you confidently of the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants upon his throne, he foresaw and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. And so this is really, really important uh, background for us to, uh, to know here as we're getting into the letter to the Romans. All right, so let's continue on here as we uh, read on here in Romans chapter 1. Let's go to verse 5 here. He says that, essentially, Paul says, through Jesus, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. Again, we can read over this stuff and say, okay, we've heard this stuff before. But again, Paul packs a lot of meaning into every word in every sentence that he writes here in Romans. This is really important. And, and one of the great themes in, in this letter, and um, Scott Hahn points this out in his commentary, this might be maybe the theme of the letter, the obedience of faith. The obedience of faith. He says this in verse 5. That is the whole point of all this. Through Christ we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. And this is intriguing too, because he not only mentions this in chapter one, but it's at the end of the letter too, in chapter 16, verse 26. Paul writes, uh, through the prophetic writings, it's made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. So there it is again. And it's interesting too, that he mentions all the nations. So let's just talk about this for a minute here, because one of the great um, uh, misunderstandings of Romans is the misunderstanding of what it means to have this relationship between faith and our actions. And Han points out people kind of understand this uh, term, the obedience of faith, in different ways. Some say it's meant to be read like this 
the obedience that flows from faith. In other words, if you have faith, then you will obey. Now, they're saying, no, 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 no. Actually, it's more to be read in this way. The obedience that is faith. Real faith equals obedience. And Hans says, really, that this is probably more what Paul meant, that real obedience is faith. Because on and on again, when you read through the letter to the Romans, he says this on multiple occasions. Chapter 10, verse 16, for example. He says, they have not all heeded the gospel, or they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us. So again, equating obedience with belief. When you reject the message of Jesus Christ, he calls that, Paul calls that, disobedience. Romans 10, 21. Of Israel, he says, all day long I've held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. 1123, chapter 1123. Even the others, if they do not persist in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. Uh, And then we have here in uh, chapter 11, verses 30 and 31, just as you were once disobedient to God, but have now received mercy because of their disobedience. And he's really talking about how the Gentiles were able to get into the church. So they have now been dis. We'll, we'll get into we'll get into this actually more later. I want to drop it there because it'll be too confusing. So, so the relationship between faith and obedience is a key theme here. The obedience that comes from faith, and this is nothing other than the teaching of Jesus as well. Don't forget what Jesus said in the Gospel of John. He said, "The one who loves me will obey my commandments." This is the measure of faith and love: obedience. Mark chapter 1, the very first thing that Jesus says when he appears on the scene, he says, repent and believe in the gospel. What does it mean to believe in the gospel? It doesn't mean simply to intellectually assent to it. It means to become obedient to it, to stop being AWOL, to turn around and walk in obedience to God. So this is very important for us to understand. Faith and obedience. And and Han says, it's kind of like saying, you know, to try to emphasize faith without reference to obedience, it's like saying you only need one wing of an airplane to fly because only one wing does all the flying or one blade of the scissors does all the cutting. No, you need both. It's very much like uh, John Paul's encyclical on faith and reason. Feed is at ratio. He says you, you need both to fly like wings, faith and reason. Well, we need faith and obedience as well. This is what Jesus teaches us, and this is what St. Paul teaches us too. You're listening to The Faith Explained on Relevant Radio. We're covering St. Paul's letter to the Romans. All right, so Paul has introduced himself. He's he's given some of the credentials of Christ, and now he's going to talk about the Romans. And, and this is really a wonderful testimony that he, that, he, that he gives to them, and this is in verses 6 and 7 of chapter 1. Uh, St. Paul says, including yourselves who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all God's beloved in Rome who are called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So, hey, you are called, you are beloved of God, and you're called to become saints. You're called to become holy. And the word saint or saints is the Greek word hagios, which means the holy one. You've heard of hagiographies. Um, and uh, uh, I know this this gal who uh, 
says, I put the hag in hagiography. <laughs> and uh, at any rate, this whole idea of becoming holy, becoming a saint, this is what we're called to do. This is what we're called to do. And it's it's amazing that Paul is saying this to uh, this mixed bag of people, Jewish Christians, Gentile believers as well, that they're all called to be saints. And, and this is really, really important. And uh, Scott Hahn has a little um, sidebar discussion in his commentary, which is really, really important for us to know about that. First of all, when we, when we think about the Gentiles coming into the church, we know that it was God's plan all along to bring all people into his church. Usually when we think about that, we think about Abraham, because Abraham was told to look up at the stars in the sky or look at the grains of sand on the seashore. They can't be counted. So shall all your descendants be. And he, of course, his name was changed from Abram, which means father, to Abraham, which means father of a multitude. And that multitude includes all the peoples of the world. But Abraham is not only important, David is as well. Matthew's gospel really makes a big deal out of this, showing that Jesus is the son of Abraham and the son of David. That's what it says in the first line of Matthew. But this is something that people often miss about David's kingdom. And again, the other time when it talks about the kingdom of God, other than Jesus talking about it in the New Testament, is David's kingdom in the Old Testament. But guess what? David's kingdom didn't just include the Jews. It also included the Gentiles. Now, in 2 Samuel chapter 8, we see this. After David becomes king, and some of this stuff is tough to read, and I dealt with some of this on another series in The Faith Explained called Old Covenant Controversies. We did a couple episodes on God and violence. I can't really get into much of an explanation right now on this, but uh, do refer to those episodes in the archives. It talks about some of the wars that David undertook expanding his kingdom into Gentile territory. Listen to this. This is 2 Samuel chapter 8. It says, After this, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them, and David took Methagama out of the hand of the Philistines. Okay, it, go, it goes on and on and talks about some of the wars and battles of David in, in 2 Samuel chapter 8. But don't forget about David's son Solomon. And again, there's, there's all these parallels between Jesus and Solomon. Solomon was the son of David. Jesus, of course, is the ultimate son of David. Solomon had wisdom that was unparalleled. Well, Jesus is wisdom incarnate. Solomon was known as an exorcist. Jesus is far better. <laughs> but in 1 Kings, this is what it says. Listen to this about Solomon. 1 Kings 4.34, men came from all peoples to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. So again, the Gentiles coming into David's kingdom to get real wisdom. What about uh, 1 Kings chapter 10, the famous visit of the Queen of Sheba? It says, now when the Queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. She came to Jerusalem with a very great retinue, with camels bearing spices and very much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she told him all that was on her mind. And Solomon answered all her questions. There was nothing hidden from the king which he could not explain to her. So she's just wowed by this. So we have here Gentiles coming into contact with the kingdom of David, the God of Israel, and all of the wisdom and gifts that are there. 
Now, Solomon himself, when he dedicates the temple in Jerusalem, this is part of his prayer of dedication in 1 Kings chapter 8. Solomon prays, likewise, when a foreigner, and by that he means a non-Jew, who is not of your people Israel, comes from a far country for your name's sake. For they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm. When he comes and prays toward this house, by that he means the temple, hear in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls you to do in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your people Israel and that they may know that this house which I have built is called by your name. So this is incredible. This prayer that God would bring all the peoples of the world to Jerusalem to worship the one true and living God. And of course, we talked about this before, these God-fearers that would kind of hang out at the synagogue and they believed in the God of Israel. They hadn't necessarily fully converted yet. And they're welcomed into the church uh, of Jesus Christ uh, fully without having to undergo these uh, ceremonial rituals of the law, like circumcision, the dietary laws, all, all that sort of stuff. So we'll talk about that this as we go along. But uh, tr- tragically, tragically, David's kingdom as we know, kind of fell apart. And it became known as the fallen tent of David. The prophet Amos talks about this in Amos chapter 9, the fallen tent of David. Rebuild. The Lord was called upon to rebuild the fallen tent of David so that it might possess all the nations, according to the prophet Amos. This is exactly what happens in the church This tent is rebuilt, and it's a big tent, all right? It's a big tent revival. All the nations, everybody's welcome. James, the bishop of Jerusalem, in the first Catholic council, the Council of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15, about 49 AD, he specifically talks about this in Acts chapter 15. He specifically talks about the fallen tent of David. James said, brethren, listen to me. Simeon, he's talking about Simon Peter. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, as it is written, After this I will return, and I will rebuild the dwelling of David which has fallen. This is the fallen tent of David from Amos chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will set it up, that the rest of men may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who has made these things known from of old. So this is incredible stuff. This is exactly what God had always wanted to do from the beginning. And this is personified through the kingdom of David, which is ultimately coming true and ultimately fulfilled in the kingdom of Jesus Christ, which is the church. Now, Paul obviously picks up on this theme throughout the letter to the Romans. In Romans chapter 15, when we get there, he'll quote Isaiah chapter 11. He says, further, Isaiah writes, the root of Jesse shall come, he who rises to rule the Gentiles. In him shall the Gentiles hope. Beautiful, beautiful words that Paul uses to greet the Roman Catholic Christians. And we'll continue on with his letter to the Romans in the next episode of The Faith Explained. But right now, let's open up The Faith Explained question and answer mailbag. Okay, as we look at our Faith Explained question and answer segment here, 
I want to remind you that you can send me your question. I'll try to answer it on the air. You can email me. The address is faith at relevantradio.com, F-A-I-T-H at relevantradio.com. You can try to find me on the X app slash Twitter. My handle is at Kale Clark, C-A-L-E Clark with an E. A number of you are wondering about the Psalms. And, and, you know, I should probably do a whole series on the Psalms for the Faith Explained. That'd be kind of fun. It's really the only biblical book that's guaranteed to be read at every single Mass as part of the Liturgy of the Word. Uh, Dr. Bruce Waltke, who was a professor of Old Testament, and he actually taught a friend of mine when I was outside of the Catholic Church uh, during my evangelical sojourn. Bruce Waltke, a very famous professor of Old Testament, wrote an article about 10 things that we should know about the Psalms. Interestingly enough, there is no title originally in Hebrew for the book of Psalms. And as Waltke points out, the book of Genesis in Hebrew doesn't, it's not called the book of Genesis. It's called by its Hebrew, the first words of the book in Hebrew in the beginning. Same with the book of Exodus, the second book in the Bible. We did the Exodus series on the Faith Explained. We also did the Genesis series. I loved reading those books together with you. The title of the book of Exodus in Hebrew is These Are the Names, because it starts talking about the, the Israelites who came out of Egypt. And so in many ways, we, we don't have uh, the same titles in, in the original Hebrew text that we have in our English Bibles. And the same is true for the book of Psalms. In Psalm 72, verse 20, it says, the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. And Walkie speculates that maybe an early version of the Psalms was actually called the prayers of David. It might have been an early title for the book. Now, Later on, the rabbis would, would call it the book of praises, the book of praises. And, and as we know, the Psalms are poetic. They're songs. They're essentially the worship songs, the songbook of ancient Israel, as it were. So the rabbis would call it the book of praises. Or sometimes they just call it praises or tehillim in Hebrew. So that's, that's another thing that, um, that might have been known as. It is, of course, a book all about praising God. And many of these Psalms are uh, traditionally pinned back to David. So in um, Codex Alexandrinus, and that's one of the uh, ancient collections of scripture, the title Psalterion is given to the book. And, and the Psalterion is a, is a stringed instrument that people would play uh, way back when. And that's where we get the name the Psalter from. We always hear about monks chanting and praying the Psalter, the Psalms, and the rosary was actually known as the poor man's psalter at one level because uh, lay people didn't do that, but uh, they could pray uh, just as the monks would pray all of the 150 psalms. Jerome, later on, uh, when he translated the Bible into Latin in the Vulgate, it was called the Book of Psalms, Libra Psalmorum. And that's where we get this English title, the Book of Psalms. How about that? So uh, things maybe you uh, never knew before about the psalms. The other thing, too, about the Psalms that we know is that it is most people, I don't want to say most people, but a lot of people, they will turn to the Psalms more than any other book for comfort, um, for connecting with God. And when you look at the New Testament, Jesus quoted the Psalms an awful lot, and so did other writers in the New Testament. Everybody's intimately familiar with the Psalter. And Psalm 23 might just be the, the most famous passage of scripture in the entire world. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And you know the rest. 
Uh, it's been such a comfort to people all throughout the ages. Here's another thing that you should know about the Psalms. They are, of course, as I said before, they are songs. They are poetic in nature. And because they are poetic in nature, you've got to read them like poetry. Don't try to read them like a police report. Don't try to read them as you would one of the historical books of the Bible, like the Acts of the Apostles. It's not quite meant to be taken in a linear fashion. So, <laughs> as, as Waltke says, when you think about it, people often say you can tell it's a poem by all the white space on the page. There's not as much to read, but you actually have to pay much closer attention because all the details are kind of compacted into these poetic lines. There's figures of speech. Um, very often there's something called parallelism, parallel lines. If a verse has two lines, the second line somehow makes us understand the first line a bit better. If there's three lines, the second and the third tell us more about the first line. So you can't just gloss over it. You've got to pay attention to the details, as he says, when you're reading the Psalms. How about that? The fourth thing that uh, Dr. Waltke says about the Psalms is that not all the Psalms are alike. And this is probably something that you've noticed too when you've read the book of Psalms or, or heard it proclaimed at Mass. The authors of the Psalms sometimes had different moods, <laughs> to say the least. Sometimes they're angry. Sometimes they're, they're, they're mad at God. All of the human emotions, the whole gamut is kind of laid out there. And this should be pretty encouraging us as we kind of use the Psalms to pray and, and ponder the Lord. Sometimes we, we, we feel those emotions. We, we don't understand what's happening. We do, it seems like the evil are prosperous and the righteous have been downtrodden, but God will set everything right in the end. But there are Psalms of praise, Psalms of lament, Psalms of petition. Some of trusting confidence in God. Some looking back with thanksgiving for things that he has done. And then, of course, there's Psalm 110. Some of the Psalms are prophetic. And actually, Jesus quotes this Psalm a lot in the New Testament. Very important to Jesus. It's a, it's a messianic Psalm, Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So the Lord God says to David's Lord, the Messiah, sit at my right hand. And this is exactly what happens when Jesus is raised to the heavens after the resurrection. How about that? So there's all kinds of different um, forms of the Psalms. There's a praise psalm component where there's a call to praise, a reason for why we would praise God. And then another call, keep praising him, praise him again. The laments, they usually go like this. They, it usually starts with, oh God, you know, why has this happened or whatever? And then there's a call for help, a lament. And then at the end, there's always a trust of the psalmist's confidence in God, despite everything. And there's praise always at the end as well. So there's different, different forms, uh, ways to kind of understand it. And if we know the patterns, we can make sense of it in a much, much better way. Okay, we're going to have to leave it here. We're out of time on the Faith Explained. We'll talk more about this next time. But if you have a question for me for our Q&A segment, you can send it in. The address is faith by email, faith at relevantradio.com. I'll see you later today, 5 p.m. Central, for the Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio Live, and tomorrow on the next episode of Faith Explained. God bless you.